0: So, we're in Hebrews chapter 10, in a series called Be the Church, and this, uh, this week actually the message is titled Be the Church, and we kind of began in this passage last week in Hebrews 10, and uh, I want to kind of continue, I want to take us back to that spot and then just continue it forward. So Hebrews chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 19, it's this call to persevere. And so let me read for us. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, the body of Christ, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let me open a brief word of prayer. Father God, we humbly come before you this morning seeking somehow to learn from you, hear from you, but, but ultimately be changed. It might be our greatest desire that you would conform to our wants or wishes, that we'd walk out of here and somehow the God of the universe would be the wind in our sail. But what's more important than that would be that we would bend to who you are, to your truths, to your will, to your wants and wishes, not only for our individual lives, but for this community of faith, uh, for the Christians in this nation, for the church in the world, that we somehow would lay down the things that we pick up and hold in our hands, that we would submit those to you and be willing to take up our cross and follow you, to live on mission, to be about the things you'd have us be about, to have your love for people, your heart for your creation, somehow inflame our hearts, change us, shape us. May you fill us this morning with just a bigger sense of the story that you're you're writing and that we can not only be a meaningful part of it but find fellowship with the God of the universe in that. So we pray that this morning. Amen. This passage has just a lot of theology in it, and so I'm going to do my best to try and unpack it, and we talked about it last week, and we talked about this idea at the beginning of that that chunk of this confidence we can have to literally come in the presence of God, The, the picture of the Holy of Holies that in the Old Testament people couldn't, couldn't come into, because they literally would be where the Spirit of God dwelt, and not having been forgiven entirely, not having been washed entirely, not being holy as God is holy, that that literally would cause us to have to die. Uh, because our God is a holy God. But now all of a sudden, there's this interesting thing where we can come boldly to that throne of God, that we can come in there with a clear conscience knowing that what Jesus did for us on the cross is, is final and fixed and, and sufficient for us to stand in the presence of a holy God. And so that's the good news that we can be reconciled to God, that we can have that relationship with God, that we can sing songs of praise and know that we're singing directly to God, that we don't have to bow our heads or try and talk through some other kind of a mediator, but we as as Christians or as believers are able to come straight to the throne of God, that he can be our father in this kind of most intimate way. And so out of that, it's a very interesting thing. And it says, so hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because he who promised is faithful. That it's really the faithfulness of God that we're anchoring our faith in. That it's not that we are strong, that we are sufficient, that once we decide that we're going to walk this walk or that we're going to be Christians or that we're going to live a certain kind of way, that we're never going to mess that up that we're never going to have doubts, we're never going to have fears. What we're really anchoring into here is the faithfulness of God and that God will deliver us, will prove himself to be the one that was worthy of our trust. Because he who promised is faithful. And then it says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And out of that, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage One another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So there's this real strong sense of if we're we're now found reconciled with God and that God is faithful and He's gonna deliver us, that this wonderful thing is happening, the the writer of, of this letter immediately wants to say, so the result of that for believers. Is that we would lean into each other, that we would encourage each other, that we would spur each other on, in other words, try and fan the flames or or get people excited about loving other people that, that somehow we would be doing that with the end result that that there 's motivation if you watched any football yesterday, that you see a lot of different things going on with coaches or other players, and sometimes they look angry at the players, but but there 's There's this resulting energy that comes from it. Or sometimes they look happy and there's pats on on the helmets or the back. But what they're trying to do at all times is whatever will result in in a greater um, sense of drive or motivation or excitement. That they're really pouring themselves into these players finding in themselves that motivation to go out and do their absolute best. They're spurring them on. And the writer of the Hebrews says, since this is the story and since this is what we can anchor into, the, the next thing is that you would do all that you can. Sometimes with all sorts of intention uh, or, or emotion or, or even frustration that you would, would, would kind of lean into people. Because they need to be spurred on. Or you would come to them with this wonderful, nurturing encouragement or affirmation or a pat on the head. Or or just kind of a, wow, I saw you do this. And and somehow in, in doing that, you really blessed me. You encouraged my faith. You are an example. You are a light. What a wonderful thing. And when we hear that kind of praise, we know what it does to to kind of our motivation and and our action or or our intentionality. But whatever we're doing, the writer to uh, to the Hebrews here is wanting us to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That, That somehow we would move out into this world with a different kind of love than the world. Why does the Bible always talk about love? It's a really stupid thing. I mean, have you thought about it? I mean, why talk about love? Because we all talk about love. Every song talks about love. Every, every sitcom talks about love. We all love love and we all talk about love. So what's the point in really commanding love? Because we all get it so well already. Right? There's something so crucial here that we are naturally in love with ourselves. And we are naturally in love with the idea of being loving people but oftentimes that just can't break the center of gravity or the kind of the traction that our own self-love has and so we always kind of revert back to prioritizing us or our own. And so, yes, we talk about love all the time in society. And I think the people in Jesus' day talked about love all the time. But Jesus says if you love only the people that love you back, that's that's not really love. Or what, what kind of example is that truly? Are you really understanding the fullness of what God has called us to or the bigness of who God is? And so the Bible always commands love because we don't do it. Because we don't really understand it. Because we don't choose it. And so we're supposed to spur one another that somehow we would break free of that like center of gravity of self-love that's so natural to us that we would move beyond that and do something radically different than what we see in culture or society and that's love sacrificially. Go to bed exhausted at the end of the day. Cry out to God and say, I don't know how I'm going to sustain this. I really don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. All my friends say my life is out of balance. But, but that's what it takes if I'm going to truly love. And God, you have to somehow get me here. You have to carry me. You have to provide times of refreshing for me. You have to show me a path or a way because I can't keep pouring it out like this unless you sustain me. That's the kind of love that the world really wants to see. It's the kind of love that God created us for. It's the kind of love that I think we want for ourselves. And so the writer uh, at this point is saying, when we understand that it's all now working as it's supposed to be, we're reconciled to God, we're with God, that we can be confident in that. The very next thing is that we should look each other in the eyes and say, um, we can now go live a different kind of life. Not out of insecurity, but out of security, not out of fear, but out of confidence and strength. Not wondering who's gonna really get us or how we're gonna get by in society, but knowing that the one that has promised is faithful and that if we walk by faith, if we live by faith, he will take care of us. So we're supposed to look each other in the eyes, we're supposed to find creative ways, encouraging ways to spur one another on toward loving good deeds. The very next thing is, so don't stop meeting together. It's a very logical thing. Don't stop meeting together. If you stop meeting together, how are you going to remind each other about the truths that are so important for you to be able to anchor your, your, your soul into? How are you going to learn and continue to grow? How are you going to fellowship? How are you going to encourage each other in the trenches, if you begin to walk away or just in a casual kind of, um, casual kind of manner, treat the fellowship of, of believers lightly. We all know the analogy, but if you take hot coals and kind of spread them out, how's that really going to work? If a team, if a football team isn't firing on all cylinders at the same time, where all 11 people are doing their best job, it never gets going. If you say, well, I'll take this play, and I'll really give it my best, and you can take the next one, um, you're never going to get very far because there's always somebody disengaged that's going to get the false start penalty uh, where their head wasn't in the game. But there's something about everybody coming together, everybody banding together, everybody leaning in that creates the energy that we know is is so exciting for, for whatever we're talking about, let alone this Christian walk that we share in common. So... Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. The second half of that thought, rather let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I, I just want to say this as strongly as I can because I think the grammar here warrants it. And this is a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, and we preach Scripture. And I think it's important to point this out that the same sentence, "Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing," is finished by the thought, "But let us encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching." So, not get, uh, not meeting together. Is tant- tantamount to what? Not going to church, not prioritizing church, not having a discipline of, of gathering together, not prioritizing that in our life, putting it up there as the things that, that really matter. If we're not meeting together um, and we're getting in the habit of not meeting together, that's tantamount to what? Not encouraging the saints. Not encouraging your neighbor, not encouraging your fellow believers or your fellow brothers and sisters. See, this, this group, this audience had begun to give up meeting together because it was um, not easy. There was actual persecution. Persecution happens to Christians It happens today in our day and age. The number one statistically most persecuted people group in the world today are Christians. Did you know that? We're the most persecuted religious group in the world are Christians. It still happens today. We see it on the headlines um, very, very specifically with regard to Iraq and the areas around there right now. But if you are a Christian in certain parts of the world, even in China, even in other places, there's different measures of of challenge or difficulty or persecution that can come. And these believers here were facing a measure of persecution that made it not easy to meet together. It wasn't desirable or fun or convenient. Why do we uh, not go to church in America? If we, if we decide, you know what, church, I'm just not going to prioritize. or I'm not going to make it a habit. I'm not, I'm not going to try and do that on a regular basis of getting together with Christians. Specifically for the purpose of being together with Christians. If we, if we don't do that in America, why are we not doing it? It's no different. It's the same reasons. Because it's not convenient. Because it's not... Fun, because it's not exciting, because it doesn't feel that good, because there are challenges or difficulty, because I have other things competing for my time. So we find the same reasons. It's just the level of urgency or felt challenge for our reasons, if you put it against this audience or other Christians in the world, in many respects is is a heck of a lot lighter or less than. Our challenges that we have to overcome aren't that great. And so why don't we overcome them? Well, these people weren't overcoming them because they, they weren't, according to the writer um, of this epistle, they weren't understanding the majesty of Christ. He argues all throughout this epistle that this Christ is, is the chief priest this Christ has more power than other things in your life. This Christ is bigger than Moses and the law. This Christ has written a new covenant that is the covenant of God with you that you can find fellowship with God. So this Christ is so big and so high and so majestic that you can't choose other things and find life there. You can't go back to the Jewish synagogue, which some of these, the, the people in this community were doing. You can't just choose your way out and go back to a secular life and say, I'm going to find meaning or power or energy or fun somewhere else. You can't go and say, I'm going to find a pseudo religion that's a little less controversial than maybe Christianity is in America because we're very politically correct. And you know what? We get to kind of cobble together all of our things in America. We, we take different doctors or medical practitioners and we kind of put together our own team Uh, We go to different kind of workout things. It's a gym on this day and yoga or Pilates. Do they still do Pilates? I'm dating myself. Um, Kickboxing's definitely out, right? I'm just kidding. Uh, You want to know what's in? What's in is sunscreen. Um, I had surgery on Thursday, and so now I'm I'm really big on sunscreen. Um, But uh, that's in. It wasn't in when I was a kid. Uh, And I've decided now that I have four daughters and live at high altitude uh, that sunscreen needs to be the new cool. And the big floppy hats need to come into style, too. They actually sold them at the doctor's office where I had to go for surgery. And there was 220-something girls working at the front reception area, and they had the big tree stand of the hats. And I kind of looked at them. and I said, you know, at Disneyland, when it's like the Jungle Cruise area, the people that work at that part, they, they wear the outfit. And I really think you guys should wear the floppy hats and it would help sell them. And these two girls looked at each other and I realized they're not yet into sunscreen. They're, there's an inauthenticity to, to, it's just a job to them but they don't really, they're not sold out. Uh, plot, oh, co- cobbling together your team. Um, so we can do that in America you know what, I'm going to take a little bit of uh, this and a little bit of that, and I'm going to to have this wonderful, fulfilling, kind of spiritual array of things in my life. The book of Hebrews says, no, Jesus is higher than that. Jesus came and he set that kind of living aside. It's worthless now. The way for you to be reconciled with God comes through his body. The writer here says the same thing Jesus said when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus has now opened up a way for you to be reconciled with God and everything else in life now pales by comparison. This is where you find the power. And so even in persecution, this writer is pleading with people, endure, If you have to endure, help each other. If you have to help each other, but you can't turn away and find what you're looking for. And so I wrestled literally, I mean, I wrestled for days with this. I'm like, how do you talk to Americans about something this serious? And a either um, not offend them or, or B not sound like you're, you're a whiny kind of um, over the top guilt guilt-giving preacher, uh, or, 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 because we don't like our idols being monkeyed with. And if I'm going to be faithful to this text, I'm going to plead with you that the inconvenience of the Christian vision of life, of Christian discipleship, of Christian community, of being found together, leaning into each other, encouraging each other to go further and to go deeper and to sustain, that that Christian vision of life is more important than your convenience that would cause you to neglect the meeting together of the saints. If I'm being faithful to this text, I'm going to tell you it is so much more important than the things that we deal with in America that, that it goes without. It's almost laughable. I know it feels tough. Like I, I, we were talking to another family of four. If you ever get families of four kids together, um, it's a really interesting conversation. And it, and it goes something like this. um. Sorry, I can't tell you, it's a privileged circle. I just decided. It's a new thing I just created, that there's a privilege, privileged class of people that can only hear it that have four kids. But um, and some of you might want to try to get into it. Um, you still have time. Others of you, you know that's, uh, that's not going to happen. Um, but, uh, but so life is tough. The, the, the fall, when you have little kids, you look at it and you're like, oh, everything's going to get back to a routine and a schedule. Like September is going to kind of bring normalcy back to life, and, and it's going to be wonderful. And as, as your kids get older, all of a sudden you, you, you keep thinking the same things, but the results don't match. You know what I'm talking about? And, and it feels like, holy cow, like what, what ha- is holy cow, that's out too, isn't it? That's out too. Um, I'm trying to update my vocabulary, but the, uh, the results are different now. And it makes life tough, and it makes Sunday mornings tough, and it makes weekends tough, and it makes energy low, and it makes quality of life something that's just a phrase that represents an idea that you've long since um, forgotten, right? And, and in that you can look at church and say, how does this really matter in the midst of all of the challenges that I'm going through? And I have to tell you, it matters. It, it, it says a lot to those challenges. Where else are you going to go with all those challenges that's going to have more power or more truth we're going, to, we're going to steer you in a more clear direction with regard to what it actually should look like as we put life before God and ask, what are we supposed to hold on to and what are we supposed to let go of? Uh, it's a crazy thing. And I think what we find is, if I preach this faithfully, the real tension is, is not with our life stage or how difficult life is, but the real tension is with our, our sense of autonomy. And that's what I mean by the idol or the idols that we don't like to let go of or have people monkey with. Then in America, we love to hold on to our sense of autonomy. I get to choose this. I, I don't even get to choose whether I want to do it or not, but I get to choose it every Sunday. Don't make me feel like it's a, a must or a duty. Um, I have a friend that says this, and I agree with it. Uh, you shouldn't shit all over people. Um, this sense of like putting duty or, or guilt, that's not, that's not it at all. It's not, I'm trying to replace your sense of autonomy with a sense of obligation that you owe me or a sense of duty that there's attendance being taken by the leaders of a church and so now I have somehow to go every single week or I have to feel this guilt because I'm failing. It's not the law. What I'm trying to, to do is say your sense of autonomy should not be bigger than your understanding of the worth and the value and the beauty and the majesty of Christ in your life. An idol is simply this. It's a, it's a power differential that is backwards. It's something else that is more dear to you than Christ. It's something else that is bigger than Christ. It's something else that you're willing to serve or bow down to, or bend life around more than you will Christ. It's, it's something that turns it upside down. It's a power differential. And so I'm not saying you have to go to church because it's now the new law, or, or you have to meet together with believers because it's, it's a duty, or that you have to feel guilt. What I'm saying is, if it's not a value then we have to look at how big Christ is in your life, how important Christ is in your life, and if this is the most valuable, important thing that has the most power that you're looking to for life and that everything else, including your sense of autonomy, is secondary to that. And when we understand this, what the writer to Hebrews is saying is is in understanding this, in having this framed correctly, the natural outworking of that should be, as he's pleading with believers, should be that you're then going to realize that Christ's body or the family of believers um, would, would come together the bride of Christ, that you would come together, that you would be together, because only in that are you gonna be able to continue and sustain living the kind of life that Christ would have you live, that he modeled for you to live, and that he's calling you into. That it's a logical outworking. The church is not this awkward, heavy burden. It's this thing that's on the path of what it means to be a disciple following Christ. And that somehow if we give up meeting together, It is tantamount to not encouraging one another. If we need encouragement, then somehow we also need church. If we think we don't need church, we're somehow saying we don't need encouragement. Which I think comes from a small view of Christ. And therefore a small view of the church which is his body. And therefore, a small view of the people that would be in a church or a spiritual community and your need for their affirmation or their encouragement. I've already got a group of friends. I've already got community. I already have my social um, slots full. I already have people that make me feel good about myself. I already have people that like the things I like and do the things I do and I can recreate with them. Or I can get together and we trade stories or jokes. I already have all of that full. So what do I really need encouragement for? Which means, why do I really need the church? Which basically means, why do I really need Christ? Which you can say if Christ is small. If Christ isn't the ultimate form of life or power or connection with God. Do you understand that? Let's read a little bit further. Hebrews ten twenty six. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, taken it lightly, used it as a stepping stone, used it as a device with a pragmatic or utilitarian purpose for something else in life, and trampled it underfoot. Who is treated as unholy or common, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I want to take a brief aside here. I'm telling you it's an aside because we need to insert back in here in just a minute. But turn to Hebrews 3, if you would. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 7. I'm going to read through the rest of the chapter. But Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, it says this. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. By the way, all of God's people through all of time, there's always this way of talking about us as if we're connected to the whole thing, the whole line. So we back then sinned. So we we now should not sin. You know what I'm saying? There's a we-ness to the body of Christ throughout time that we talk about with solidarity, both good and bad. So uh, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion, that time in the desert, that period of testing, when your fathers tested and tried me, and for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and I said their hearts are always going astray and that they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, again, that righteous God, that zeal of God, it's mine to avenge. I declared on oath in my righteous anger that they shall never enter my rest, meaning the promised land that I have created for them, my rest that I was delivering to them because I'm faithful. Not their rest, that they earned or they dreamed up for themselves, but my rest for them. Because the one who promises is faithful. So I declared on my anger that they would never enter my rest. So see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. There's something about sin that it's like um, plaque buildup on your teeth. That little by little it, it hardens and calcifies your heart. That, that daily, just like we would have to brush that off of our teeth, right? That, that daily we have to be encouraged that somehow we're refreshed and reminded and we catch a glimpse again of the purity and the beauty of what's going on with God. Because day by day if we don't do that, we begin to, to harden and calcify. So, I mean, listen to that again. Encourage one another daily. It's that important that you do it every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin is at work on a daily basis, trying to turn your mind and your heart away from understanding that Christ has opened up a new way through his body to be reconciled with God. Sin is daily trying to deceive you and make you think that money or friends, that fraternal thing that we all love, community, is somehow a bigger idol or a bigger uh, bigger or more powerful God than Jesus is. That you're going to find your life, that you're going to find your nurture, you're going to find your answers, that you're going to find your sense of meaning or confidence or self-worth somewhere other than in the majesty or the bigness of Christ that daily that is trying to go on in your hearts and your minds as sin tries to deceive you and turn that. And so we have to encourage each other with the truth daily. We, I mean, brothers and sisters, we have to encourage each other with the truth of Christ daily. We live in a a country with very little persecution, so I think we think all it takes is a tune-up once a year. All it takes is a good Easter service. All it takes is a good church potluck, maybe now and then. We need it daily. May we come to share in Christ, if we hold firmly till the end the confidence that we had at first, we have to sustain as has just been said today, if, it, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. All right, so now here, here's where the theology comes in. Verse 16 of chapter three in Hebrews. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they, not also, uh, were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Whom was God angry with for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? Question mark. So here's the conclusion. Verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. It's one of the most profound insights I've ever had or heard, or had someone explain to me distinctions in Scripture. Now, I'm going to slow it down for you so you get this, okay? Verse 18, we're talking about this group of people that disobeyed. They disobeyed God. They grieved God. They angered God. God punished them. They sinned, right? They sinned and disobeyed. Verse 19, so we see what? What do we see? We see that they were not able to enter the promised land. They weren't able to come into God's rest. They weren't able to, to experience the fullness of, of what God had designed for them. That, that wonderful life, that utopia, that rest that he wanted them to experience. They weren't able to come in. Why? The answer is because they sinned, right? No. We see that they weren't able to enter because of their un belief here's the distinction unbelief is sin sin against god is essentially at bottom at its root at its core unbelief when we walk by faith we believe and obey when we don't have faith We disobey and we sin. And so Hebrews is calling us first and foremost not to obedience but to faith. I'm calling you not to meet as believers on Sunday because I want you to be obedient. I'm calling you to meet with believers, and get together and encourage each other daily. I'm calling you to do that because I'm calling you to faith. And if we trust and if we have faith, then we obey and we live out our life as disciples of Christ. And we do that in community and we do that encouraging each other and we do that reminding people that Christ is all and above all. We have everything we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. And if we come over here and we don't really believe, we kind of think Christ is okay. He's a great guy. Um, I like him a lot. Um, Meeting together, not so much encouraging each other daily, don't know that that's really what I feel like I need. And pretty soon, we slowly drift off and what we're really doing is rebelling against God and this is what Hebrews 3 talks about. Don't rebel against God and go your own way. Autonomous, an idol. Don't do that. And you do that by the obedience that comes by faith, And the bigness, and the majesty, the beauty, the sovereignty of God and his plan for us through Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Someone gets me. Right? You watch the Clemson game, we're on the same wavelength. All right, so remember I was saying that's an aside. I, I mean, please hook it in your mind, please write it down if you need to. Sin and disobedience is nothing more than unbelief, non faith. Faith translates to belief in obedience. Do you see the connection? Okay. So we're inserting back in to chapter 10, verse 32. So there's warning of, listen, God is a big God. Don't trample underfoot what's going on here, don't treat it as casual or light. It says this Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. What do we take as hallowed in America? We take this as hallowed ground in America, that we have a right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Okay, do you know where Thomas Jefferson got that? Anyone that's taken my class over at Kilns College is going to raise their hand right now, right? By the way, we had graduation yesterday for Kilns College and graduated four students, our first three master's students. Um, it was really cool stuff. Um, it's really, really, really cool stuff. But so, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson borrowed it from the British philosopher John Locke, his second treatise of government, where he said that we all have right, uh, a right to life, liberty, and property. Was in my class. Graduated yesterday. Um, life, liberty, property, and so property was defined as that thing that you have whereby you can you can root yourself, you can flourish, you can grow. Remember, in agrarian culture, to have land means security. It means that you can eat. It means that you can have shelter. Right. It means all of those things. That's why land was so important of a symbol in the Old Testament. This nation of Israel, I'm giving you land. Why? You can have security, you can have dwelling and shelter, and you can have an abundance of all that you need to flourish and to thrive. Why does it matter, the immigrant or the stranger? Why does that matter? Well, they don't have property, they don't have an inheritance in your land. They don't have a place to domicile. They don't have a place to, to farm or to tend or to graze. They don't have the things that are needed, so they're vulnerable and you need to care about them. But property was this shorthand kind of hook for, for what really mattered. And so Jefferson, who uh, studied in the classics and loved the classics, um, that, I mean, our, our, our original framers borrowed so much from the Greeks and the Romans. It's why if you go to... Washington, D.C., everything looks like it's in that kind of classical period, right? Um, But the Senate, I mean, all these phrases and everything else borrowed from the classical period. And so Jefferson is is basically saying, in the classical sense of happiness, it's the same idea of the good, the true, and the beautiful, the flourishing of the soul, that everyone has a right to flourish, same as property. So Jefferson was just, in a poetic way, saying the same thing as Locke that you have a, a right to life, liberty, and the ability to flourish, which means your property, your stuff, the things that you can own. Um, and then invest into and, and reap the rewards of the fruit from that, right? Okay. We hold that pretty sacred. If I try to take your property from you, we hold that pretty sacred. These people are being persecuted. Their property is being confiscated. Because of their faith and their allegiance to their public proclamation... That they are Christians. Again, this just happened in Iraq. The whole we are N for Nazarene, right? Convert or die. And we're going to confiscate your property if you're going to claim to follow Jesus of Nazareth, claim to be a Nazarene. And this writer is saying, hang in there, don't turn away. Don't back off. Why? Because if you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Here's the question. Is what God promises bigger than your property, your pleasure, your security, your life? Here we go with our idols again, right? The question is, if we believe... We will obey even if our property is being confiscated. Why? Because what we're believing is that God's promise is bigger than our property or our pleasure or our autonomy or whatever it is. Uh, I, I had a, an embarrassing experience a week ago. Um, we all have buttons, right? You know what a button is, right? Somebody hits it and you react in an illogical way. Some people have more buttons than other people, I'm here to tell you. And I could name names. Um, but I have my buttons. And so I went three years ago with one of Antioch's interns. This is, I'm telling you the backstory. This is how the button was developed. This is the genesis of a button. Uh, I went with one of Antioch's interns to go see a movie. It was a Sunday afternoon. I thought I was being really nice, spending time with interns. And we go up to the movie and I don't ever sign the back of my credit cards just because I don't ever do what I'm supposed to do. Um, My personality type is if I'm on a road that's windy and there's nothing coming for miles and miles, I just drive in a straight line. Who else, who else is with me? Okay, who else would never do that? Yeah, we have friends, the Barbers, remember uh, Leroy was here, Leroy and Donna Barber, our friends from Portland. We have this argument every time we're together as couples because she is so absolutely rule bound, she cannot understand me, and I can't understand her. Um, so I don't sign the back of my credit card. So anyways, we're 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 paying for the movie. There's not many people in line, and I hear the question like, "Oh, can I see your ID?" Which you know I'm kind of used to, and, and it always is just like, "Really? Do you need to see my ID?" Uh, so I'm like, I'm getting out my ID, and I'm starting to hand it over, and then all of a sudden I realize, like, wait a second, I gave her cash. I don't understand. Like, I gave her cash. This doesn't make sense. So I kind of like paused and, I gave you cash. Yeah, I need to see your ID. What for? It's a rated R movie. (laughs) I said, are you kidding me? She goes, no, I'm not kidding you. I'm like, are you for real right now? Like, you're carding me for a movie. And she's like, yes, sir, and I can't give you the ticket until you show me your ID. And it created a button. <laughs> so now, when I get carded for alcohol, the same response comes out of me. And so I was with uh, some interns this past year who were older, or I think it was killing students or something, and, and somebody asked for my ID, and it really, the same reaction, Really, and, I, and it was like this, uh, like battle. You know, I I deserve not only to, to have a drink, but to not have you offend me by asking, like if if I'm old enough, right? And so then, like a, about a month ago, I was at Costco, and I was I was buying um, some wine for a, a church function, um, <laughs> and they they asked me uh, to see my ID, and I said. Um, If my wife was here, she'd be flattered. I'm not. (laughs) And and they kind of start saying something, and I realize like I'd leaked out my disdain, you know, and I'm like, I I feel like by the time I'm 41, I've earned the right to just be able to buy alcohol. Um, As if that's like a power or like a a nod, like, oh, that's Ken, he has the right (laughs) to buy alcohol. Like, there's some kind of honor in not being carded, right? So then last week I was at Whole Foods, and we were in a hurry or something like that, and they did it to me, and my Evan works at Whole Foods, and so I kind of lashed out at the gal, and she had a button that said, 40 is the new 21, and I said, oh, nice button. I said, it doesn't say 41 is the new 21, (laughs) and... And then all of a sudden, this little voice in the back of my head said, people in this town know that you're a pastor. (laughs) You might want to act like it, right? And so then all of a sudden I thought, like, oh, I hope she doesn't know who I am. Maybe she'd tell Evan. Maybe there's, like, church discipline that would come from being a jerk. Um, And I don't think I'm over my button yet. Um, I think it might happen again. But that's me being offended. That's me being offended. That's persecution. Uh, we, we, I have so much yet to learn about what I could actually stomach or suffer um, if the cause of Christ demanded it. You know what I'm saying? We, I think, have so much to learn Uh, in terms of what we can suffer if the cause of Christ demanded it. Um, You don't come to church because you need more friends. You don't come to church because you need people to pat you on the head. You don't come to church because the speaking is or isn't great, because the music is or isn't your style. You don't come to church for any of those reasons. You come to church because when you fall in love with Christ, he fall in love with the things that Christ loves and died for. And he didn't die for you, he died for us. Do you understand what I'm saying there? He died for me and you and us. And he desires to build a church where we encourage each other so that we can sustain Peter, when he declared, I mean, listen to, maybe hear this for the first time. When Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Some people think you're a prophet. Some people think you're nobody. Some people think you're Gandhi. Some people think, okay, that's nice. There's a lot of people that don't get it, but who do you say that I am? So these people don't, fully get the bigness of Christ. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, that's, that's, I don't care about that. At the end of the day, I don't care about that. It's really important, though, who you say I am. Who do you say that I am? And What does Peter say? You're the son of the living God. You're the one, I don't know that Peter fully understood it, but you're the one whose body is going to open the way. You are the link. You're the high priest. You're greater than Moses, greater than the law. You're the one that's the shepherd that was prophesied in, uh, all the way back in Psalms and Ezekiel 34. You're the one, the son of God. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, Peter. Um, on you, on this, I will build my church. On on someone that gets it, on what that person who got it proclaimed, on this solid foundation that is not something we use for our own benefit and trample underfoot, but something that we anchor into because the one who promises is faithful. On this, I will build Ken Weitzma. No. I will build the church that Ken Weitzma is a part of I'll build the church that all of the brothers and the sisters that I care about will be a part of. I will build that thing that as it grows has a structure and a foundation and and architecture that can hold those people. Because as a body is a vital thing and the different parts serve one another, this church will help serve one another, encourage one another, spur one another on toward love and good deeds that we might all stand firm at the end like we did at the beginning. There's this thing called the juvenile, uh, juvenileization. Say that five times. Wait till you get home to do it. The juvenileization of the American church. The juvenileization of the American church is something that's argued, uh, a couple different ways, but one of it is just simply what we created with youth programs to reach a young generation of Christians in the 40s, 50s, 60s. What we created there, the way we went about it, making it all about them, all about entertainment, all about experience, that those people then grew up to be the older people in the church. And what we slowly did was juvenilize the church. The, the statement here, let me just read it. Um, this is how this article... Begins, ignore everyone else. This time is just about you and Jesus. The music changes to a slow dance tune, and the people sing about falling in love with Jesus. A guitarist sporting skinny jeans and a soul patch closes the worship set with a prayer beginning in, Hey God. And the spotlight then falls on the speaker, who tells entertaining stories, cracks a few jokes, and assures everyone that God is not mad at you. He loves you unconditionally. If you ask the people here why they go to church or what they value about their faith, they'll say something like, having faith helps me deal with my problems. I use it for something meaningful. You see how subtle that is. It's almost like sin slowly creeps in and it doesn't sound all that bad, but we, we use Christ. Um, the juvelization is basically this idea that character traits of adolescence begin to show up in the adult population. It's when you it's technical definition of juvenilization. And what what is being argued here is that we've made it church light and we've basically created church in our own image. What we would want it to be. And that in this somehow we lose the bigness, the wildness, the danger of God. And in it, we stop listening for a promise that if we endure, that if we suffer, it'll still go well with us because he who promises faithful. And we begin not even thinking about those kinds of promises. And we begin thinking, what's the immediate relevance right now of church? Is the sermon relevant? Do I like it? Can I apply it to my life? What's the immediate relevance? And when suffering begins to come or things don't work, it's like, yeah, this isn't working. So let me take it even more lightly and begin to look for other things that are gonna be pragmatic kind of uh, devices that I can utilize as I'm autonomously mapping out this wonderful life that I'm gonna engineer for myself. And so juvenilization, this, this process of juvenilizing the church I think has basically begun to erode the church in America or has for some time been eroding the church in America. We can't call anyone back to anything big or, or, or foundational because we've lost the whole sense of that. So I think this whole idea for me, I, I was going to come in, let me just tell you, I'm gonna, I might draw it, I'm going to draw it real quick and then we're done. So this is going to end on a drawing. It's great. I was going to come in because I like Linda, um, and I was going to try and go, uh, let me try and use the bully pulpit to help Linda, which to me sounds like a very noble idea. Linda's our children's director. So if the pen works, if it doesn't, it's going to be hard to act out. So, all right, it works. Uh, so we have on Sundays, by the way, do you know that 232 people, there were 232 sign-ups for new groups the last two weeks, it's kind of cool um, if, uh, if you guys think about that. And then uh, I told you I had a lot of papers. So, Linda, do you know, we, we on average take care of 150 kids per Sunday. And the number of volunteers needed to have the right um, percentages in those classes is 41. 41 people per week needed to do kids program. 15 people for setup and teardown for a total of uh, 56 people needed to do kids' ministry. It's a small city. Okay? Um, so here's what I was going to. Oh, and, and, and we had somebody come out and do a diagnostic on our church and staff. It was really cool. Luke Hendricks, executive pastor at Imago, he came and on their dime spent a week with us just coaching and leaning into our staff and kind of taking a diagnostic. And his comments to to Rick Earhart, who chairs the board of me afterwards, was like, wow, you guys have a really healthy church culture. Your staff is really invested both in the church and in each other, way more so than I would have expected. It's an open uh, environment where everyone can speak truth. There's no fear that you're not allowed to say something or whatnot. He goes, but here's the one thing, sustainability. Um, I don't know that your staff can sustain at the current level. And the first person he talked about was Linda. Not because of Linda, but because every Saturday, on average, she gets 11 cancellations. Can you imagine on your Saturday afternoon, uh, while your husband's watching football and wanting to hang out and have family time, that you're trying to fill 11 slots and worrying about tomorrow? Every single week. So here's what I was going to do. I was going to draw that out. So Linda comes to me and says, I need 11 people more people every week. And, I, and, and so here's the different ways we could solve that. Uh, do we start paying workers to work on, on Sundays? No, because then all the people that volunteer begin feeling like I'm only a volunteer. Other people get paid. So it only cheapens the volunteer thing, right? And we shouldn't be paying for more and more stuff. The big thing we have wrong here, I'm going to just draw over the top of that, is we have a big problem with the juvenileization of the American church in that this is the circle of work, and we think pastors are supposed to do that. When there was a problem in the early church in Jerusalem, they came and said, we got a problem, and the pastors said, no, we're supposed to teach and preach the word and disciple people, and so deacons are going to come in. Um, qualified business persons that are very skilled that way. They're going to come in and figure out this thing and help make it work with the church. But the pastors are going to continue to be here to equip. What we do is we make pastors in America do all the work, and we don't really care about theology as much. and We don't really care about the office of preaching or teaching. And, and so it's, it's the responsibility of some other people. I just go to that church. You know what I'm, you what I'm saying? We don't come in with this mindset that it's our church. It's our problem. That Saturday issue is, is something that should pertain to all of us. What are our creative resources that we bring to it? But that's a, that's a different story. But so if we start paying people, that doesn't really work. Let's start requiring parents to go in there. Uh, that sounds really good to non-parents. As a parent, I think those of you that don't have kids should be the ones that should have to go in there. Um, so since you see what it's like. I'm just kidding. Not really, but, but yes. But I don't, think, I don't think requiring things, duty is the answer to anything. You know what I'm saying? Like that just feels like it changes the whole dynamic of church. Um, well, let's start really leaning on people that you're a bad, bad, bad person if you volunteer and you call in uh, lame on Saturday but you don't find your own replacement. That sounds very logical, and I, and I would love it if more people did find their own replacement. But that's a hard thing to do. If, if your kid starts throwing up at 9 o'clock at night and you've only been coming to the church for three months or six months, and, and you, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's a hard thing to do. I get that. Um, I wish more people would, but, but really saying you're bad, bad, bad and, and slapping a bunch of hands, that's not going to help, right? Let's really lean heavy. That's what I was going to do today, by the way. Uh, on recruiting more people because we just need a lot more people. I don't think this is what I want to do. What I really want to do is say that Jesus died for the church and this church would be a part of that and that this church is special and that I believe God cares about this church And I believe that this church holds the answers to a lot of the things that we might not feel like we need, but that deep down spiritually we actually need. There's a difference sometimes between our felt needs and our true spiritual or actual needs. And that somehow if we believe and have faith and fall in love with the things that Jesus loves, that maybe we would look at our church with new excitement. And say, we can fix these things. Many hands makes light work. I don't want to work in the kids ministry per se that way, but I have these gifts. I'll be a volunteer coordinator. I'll be someone that loves on the volunteers so that they feel affirmed and all that. Let me come in and I'll do setup. Let me come in uh, and do this. Do like I do, because I haven't worked a single day in kids ministry. Um, I send my three oldest kids in there every week. And then I go check. Honestly, I, I mean, I do. They weren't scheduled this week, and on Thursday, I was like, hey, girls, who wants to help Linda? And two of my three raised their hand say, we'll help this week. And then I texted Linda, and I was texting Linda, and I got credit. <laughs> do you see how this works? Husbands, offer up your wives. Uh, <laughs> it, it goes great that way. Um, uh, find a friend. Make it spiritual community while you do it. Get your small group to do it. You see what I'm saying? I don't have to. I, should, I don't have to. I don't have to use the wrong word. I don't want to. And I don't think you guys want me to turn this into a guilt church. It's a spiritual community that's a beautiful thing that's been bought by the price of Christ's blood and that we all get to find meaning and fulfillment as we come together and as each part does its work, says Ephesians The whole body grows and knits itself together in love as each part does its work. Pastors having this role to train and equip, not to do the work or to guilt people, but to to spur people on toward love and good deeds. That we all get to somehow take on the challenges of of this church and say, we can envision not just meeting those challenges, but exceeding those challenges. You're artistic. Help us make it not look like a high school. I'm dying to make that hall not look like a high school. We had a person uh, leave Antioch once because they had a bad high school experience growing up. It sounds funny, but it's true. People have buttons. So this This church meeting here became a button. Let's not make it look like the school. Let's make it look like what we want it to look like for kids, for visitors. Whatever the gifts are, there's different areas of this church. Sound, music, uh, encouraging people. We used to have a, a gal in this church that had four or five other friends and they would encourage people during the week. They would email the staff, who needs encouragement? And they would just anonymously do it. She moved, it went away. That's the way it works, right? Everything falls Uh, Rises and falls on leadership. But is there someone else that wants to do something like that? That that's your gift? A flower brigade. I don't know, because flowers are cool. Um, Whatever it is, but we can create an an environment where we spur each other on and encourage each other uh, like America has never seen. We can have an adult church and fight back against this whole idea of the juvenilization of American church where we're all coming in and actually living out that adolescent fantasy that it really is all about us when it's not. And I think we can be liberated from that. And I think if we are liberated from that, boy, it'll be something that I wanna be a part of. I don't want Antioch eight years in just to begin to devolve into something that's routine. We started this thing as a movement, not an institution. We started this thing with the idea that we could be or more closely approximate the New Testament church than some of the examples that I'd gone to or that others of us have gone to. And that means that any given Sunday, we can spark that energy, any given Sunday. So two things I challenge you to do as we close. I challenge you this week to just reach out every day and encourage somebody in this church. Any different way, any, any words of encouragement, little gifts, tape it to their door, bring something by the office for somebody that works hard, go visit somebody in the hospital, uh, text somebody, just see some, somebody and smile at them. But I just, I just wanna give you this challenge. This week, encourage somebody daily and let's see what it feels like in this room next Sunday. I mean, seriously, let's, let's just, without even like real stories, let's just see if the air In this room is different next Sunday. So I challenge everybody here to encourage somebody daily that's a part of this spiritual community. Secondly, uh, the team has put together a whole lot of needs for work out in the commons, uh, different areas of the church that need help, particularly, uh, maybe chief among those, the the kids' city that we have. Um, I highly encourage you, not out of guilt, but to go explore how God might lead you into serving using your gifts in a way that's sustainable for you too. I don't want you to feel guilty, sign up for something, and in three months you burn out on it. There's got to be a way for this body to work in a way that's that's unbelievably healthy and exciting and encouraging and sustainable. So encourage someone daily uh, that you'd go out and look at the opportunities in the commons and that please... Please, please, help, let's help each other make this a place where we actually believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, that that's a rock that the church is built on, not something that we trample underfoot. Deal? All right, Father, (laughs) Father, I ask your blessing on this time that it's for your glory. Pray that in Jesus' name.